0: Welcome, welcome again to another rendition of Welcome to Fatherhood Interview. My name is Sir Royce Briales, and I'm with my prestigious co-host, Dr. Rodney Young. How's it going, my brother? Everything's well, man. I think we are. Really man, things are great, man. I just went for a walk, man. It's hot outside, but I don't care. Gotta get those steps in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm also pleased to announce we have a special guest. Richard, I want to say your last name right. Avodian. Did I get it?
1: Very close, very close, but very close. I,
0: I applaud you. It's Avdoyan. Avdoyan. Okay. Yes. My apologies. Not a yeah. problem. Thanks. Thanks for jumping on with us. Uh, so let us know, uh, Richard. What do you do for a living, for a purpose, and also uh, you know, how many kids you got and what are their ages? Wonderful.
1: Presently, I am the owner and founder of Midwest Business Institute, which is a leadership and training, leadership coaching and training company. But I have just recently launched Men Mentoring Men Network, which will be focusing exclusively with my working with men, particularly in leadership coaching and three different components that I do to help men to enrich in their lives so they could become more effective fathers, husbands, friends, colleagues, leaders so they could really reach their purpose and stand strong as a man amongst men. I've been married for 42 years. I have one son who's married, who has two sons. And um, I'm loving playing grandpa, I I, I love it. And um, so, I mean, my initial career, I was a psychotherapist in private practice for 27 years. And I worked a, a great deal with men. And I realized over the years that there were a number of issues that men struggle with, that was pretty universal, that most men were struggling with the same concerns, blocks, experiences in their lives that really caused them discomfort and kept them very private, which in effect made them ineffective in reaching their goals in life. So I've gone back to that. I'll be 71 this year. I've traveled the country speaking as a motivational speaker and an expert speaker, and I'm tired of it. So I want to regroup and go back to my foundation of working exclusively with men through this new venture of Men Mentoring Men Network.
2: So I know that you said that you have one son, like when, um, when your son was young, what were some of the challenges that you went through or the things that you, uh, that you had issues with as far as being a dad?
1: There was one specific that comes to mind is I grew up in the 60s and um, being very transparent with you gentlemen, uh, which I don't typically do, is that uh, I was very involved in drug usage. Um, I wasn't big on smoking marijuana, but I did more chemicals, THC, LSD. I I, I lived in a, a very communal living situation for many years. And uh, I was very reluctant of how much of that I wanted to tell my son growing up. In fact, I, I chose to be very little bit infer it, but not really come clean with it. Uh, fortunately, that was never an issue for him. But I, 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 I type walked. Do I tell him or not tell him? And what value is there in telling him? Now, if there were an issue, I think I would have shed. I would have come clean. But it, because it wasn't an issue, I didn't feel that it was a real necessity, but it was something that was always in the back of my mind.
0: So um, when you talk to your son about about that, I, um, how did that make you feel? Like what, uh, what, what kind of emotions did you have in that moment?
1: I, I was scared, quite yeah. frankly. I, I was scared that um, how was he gonna see me. Was it going to change anything? And fortunately, we never had to go into it. So I never really had to delve into the depth of it. It was always inferred. I shared with him that there was some, re- my wife knew, so she made reference to it in a very subtle way. So I never really had to um, thoroughly address it with him because he never did drugs to my knowledge. So I didn't see the necessity to bring it up. In depth, so we never really had a concrete conversation about it But it was a struggle that might you asked me what would have been the issue That was an issue that I was thankful that it didn't have to come up because I didn't want to have to deal with it. Yeah. I would have had that come up. Can you um,
2: I know earlier you said you're from New York. Can you talk about your background, your your upbringing a little bit? Sure,
1: certainly. Uh, my father, I'm Armenian and my wife's Armenian, and my father was born on the ship coming here from the old country. Following the Armenian Turkish massacre, my grandfather came with a pregnant wife on a ship following this Turkish massacre in 1915. My father was born on the ship coming here. I'm first born in this country. I was raised very ethnic. I spoke Armenian fluently until I went to public school, at which time my father wanted me to learn English. Uh, It was very traditional family. We spoke Armenian at home, dominantly ate most of my food was Armenian. And I remember, I'll tell you a funny story, is that my neighborhood consisted of, excuse my candidness here gentlemen, but in my day, it was black, not African-American, but my neighborhood were black, Polish, Armenian, and Italians. And we were all friends. We all went to school together. We played together. And uh, it was like United Nations. I mean, it was everybody's mama was everybody's mama. You couldn't get, I don't care what color you were, you were if you made a mistake down the street, all the moms talked to each other until you got home and got whipped. But I, I remember I was so tired of eating Armenian food that I remember my one friend invited me over for dinner and we had fried bologna sandwiches. And I thought, ooh, God, I love this stuff. And then I had Spam sandwiches, fried Spam yeah it was like a whole different world, and it was just a joyful childhood. Uh, we, we you know there was really a very strong community. As I said, there was um I'll tell you one example. there was a a black woman, very heavy set, and Miss Ellis was her name. And she always sat on the front porch, but you don't see porches anymore. You don't see people sitting on any porches anytime anymore. But I remember walking home one day and i walked by a middle-aged woman and i walked by and next thing i know is i hear miss ellis saying ricky boy you better get yourself up here boy and i thought oh lord i did something wrong i don't know what i did but i did something wrong and you didn't disrespect your elders in my day and i remember walking up the stairs and i was scared and she said, you come here, boy. And she made me come close. And she had was notorious for grabbing your ear and twisting it and bringing her face to your face. And she said, listen, if I ever see you walk by another human being without a good day, good afternoon, I'll slap you silly. Because that person deserves to be recognized as being on this planet. No, she said, i alive or something. I don't remember exactly, but it was either alive or on this planet or deserving to be recognized. And to this day, I always will say hi, even if they don't recognize or say anything back to me, and that was the way I was raised. So my neighborhood, everybody's mama was your mama. Everybody. I mean, you didn't, it was just a very joyful community where everybody looked out for everybody. Everybody's children was everybody's children.
0: So how did your upbringing affect you or um, influence you as a, as
1: a father? Because I, interesting enough, I, I wanted my home, uh, having only one child, uh, I worked very hard to make our home the hangout home. So I, I, I really liked the fact I designed our basement to accommodate my son having his friends over all the time because I wanted us to be a place where, you know, again, my background as a therapist, you know, a lot of the young boys, um, I would kid about life and such. And so I, in a way, I I fathered a number of them in different ways without actually preaching to them. But uh, I think it was more about wanting to my neighborhood that all the kids knew they could come to our house and there'd be ice cream cones or popsicles in the refrigerator in the garage and and that they're welcome to it as long as they were respectful and took care of their trash and didn't mess them up and were always thankful. So it's about modeling what I had, trying to recreate that in my community. That's cool, that's cool.
2: So, you know, I wanna, um, you said something that's kind of intriguing to me. So um, let me know if you don't wanna talk about it. Okay. I know that you said that you became a therapist. Did you become a therapist because of the LSD or was it something like that you experimented with to develop that understanding?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a good question. No, I wouldn't. But let me tell you why I think it, it wasn't because I did it. When I was, I went to a community college first before I went to a university. So I had two years mm-hmm. of associate degree and I was involved in Vietnam protesting and we took over our unit, our community college and governor Rockefeller had to come. And, you know, I got on the FBI list because I was on the radical list and they sent me to this because of my drugs and stuff. The, the counselors sent me to what was an encounter group, which was in the sixties where You went up and you were in what create a bunch of people and you had to self-disclose and you had to do all this trust walk and trust fall, all these weird things. And what I realized was that when I was amongst those other individuals who were in the same situation as I, many of them start talking to me and sharing with me their journey. And I start realizing that I had a particular personality that was very comforting that people felt comfortable sharing with me. So it was one of the counselors that says, you know, Richard, I was an accounting major. That's what I was studying, accounting. And I realized this is not the right fit for me. So I went to sociology. So I got a bachelor's degree in sociology and minority studies. That's where my associate degrees were. I mean, my bachelor's degree was in sociology, minority studies because I wanted people to understand what my minority was because most people never heard of Armenians. Plus I saw the minorities that I was a part of and then what were the social factors that contributed to some of us falling down those paths? What were the contributing factors that were different than the traditional white boys world? You know, so I, it was very part of that. I think that's what sent me there. Not, oh, I'm, I was a drug user so I wanna work with drug users. That was never my issue. That was never my drive at all.
2: No, I'm not saying like you were a drug user um, and that's why you wanted to work with it. But um, like from what I hear, like when people take um, like LSD and like the psychotropic drugs, they have like a spiritual kind of -er experience.
1: I I did one of those, but it still wasn't what triggered me to go where I went. It, okay, okay. there there's some truth to that. I mean, there there's some truth to that. but that's that's not what triggered my shift. My shift was more because I start seeing through the counselor, that was vice president student government, and I had to go to the counselor and, and he helped me find my gift. And my gift was I was people felt very comfortable with me. Even today as an executive business coach, an executive leadership coach, Mm -hmm. More men tell me that they feel extremely comfortable in my presence than they do typically with men, that there's a comforting part. I don't know if I have a parental father, big brother energy, what there is about my personhood, but men feel very comfortable getting naked with me, if you will. I mean, getting down to their naked truth without realizing they're doing it because there's a comfort in it. Mm (laughs) <laughs> what would
0: you say um you know going back to your son um what was your favorite phase i'm always interested in learning about like older uh parents or grandparents even like what was your favorite stage of being a parent was it like the early stages the like
1: five to ten year old stage or teenage stage i for me watching him i think my favorite stage for the same reason was two pockets when it was between seven and nine and then from 16 to 19 because he came, he, he surpassed me. He he really got the best of my wife and I, my wife was an English professor, so he got great writing skills, but he has my personality. I was a dancer for 16 years of my life. I danced and I was in the theater he was—he played hockey all the way through high school and college, and played football. But he also was a thespian. He was in the theater at school. But when he was five to nine, he would dress up and come down and put on plays for us, because he was just animated. Well, then he got in the theater at school, but he was also a vice president of senior class on the prom court. He played football. He played sock—I mean, soccer. He played hockey. He went to Czech Republic to play hockey. So he really became a Renaissance young man. So it was the the merging of those two time periods that he was really coming to his own person, honoring the gifts he had without being compelled to have to give up one part because it wasn't perceived as masculine. So he, he was able to juggle all of that.
2: Can you talk about, like, um, the changes in community, or how people view each other? I know how you were saying, like, early on, like, it was your neighborhood that you grew up in was very diverse, and you spoke to everyone, you know, you show respect. Um,
1: can you talk about just, like, the changes over time? I, you know, you're asking me, and quite frankly, it saddens me majorly. I don't see community any longer. I, I, people don't, I mean, I live in a subdivision and I could, I've i never seen, I was driving around recently, my wife was out of town, so I was driving my subdivision and there's nobody outside. So how do, you, how do you create a neighborhood of safety or understanding if you don't get out of your house? You know, I always wonder, what if a kid got out of school bus and their parent didn't get home in time and the kid was locked out. What do you do with a kid that's eight years old? They don't know where they're gonna go. What are they gonna do? Sit out in the heat in a, I mean, it, it saddens me that, and I don't it has nothing to do with race, sexuality. It has nothing to do with that. That I'm sure there's a contributing factor to that, and that's sad, but it it's even amongst like-minded people, like the same race, the same religion, say there, there's a disconnect. I think it's because we're taught there's so much fear of abuse. There's so much fear of being accused of abuse. I mean, it It, it just saddens me that I don't think that there is a, a sense of community. I think about my neighbors. You know, there's a neighbor next door who's a very good friend of mine. They're both, you know, she is a widow now, and we told her, if you ever need us, we're right here. Now, we've known her for years and we do talk to her. But how many other people need, we need people. You know, Barbara Streisand, people who need people. Well, we all need each other for safety, security, you know, emergencies. But, you know, people, look at what happened. People could be dying on the street. People walk by them. And why is it? Because we're afraid of being sued. Even good Samaritans get ripped off or get you know, ostracized or sued or what have you. And it saddens me, it really does. So I don't think, I think we talk a lot about it, but I don't think it's happening, sadly enough. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep working at it. I'm not giving up, but that's why I started this this men's network is to helping men in general, to really become stronger and understanding what does it mean in this country today to be a man? It's confusing. You know, traditional male values are are gone. No one even understands what does it mean. Do you open the door for a woman? Do you not open the door? Do you shave your body or you let yourself be hairy? Do you, you know, can you pursue any occupation or you got to be macho? What does macho mean? You know, I mean, there's so many, there's so many. Are you romantic? If you, should you help your wife, not help your wife? You know, there's just so many elements that have changed, and it's same for women. It's changed for women as well. It's not just one-sided. Now, I'm, I'm really going off a little bit here, but I, 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 the point you're asking me is, have we deviated away? Absolutely. I, I believe we have. Uh, I'm hoping, I'm very hopeful that things will change. There are people like you two young men that are trying to make a difference with fatherhood, which I applaud. That's the way that I'm doing this podcast with you, because I'm in awe of two gentlemen, under 40, making a commitment to look at fatherhood, I was exhilarated when I met the two of you. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Um, So talk a little bit more about your dad. Like, um, what kind of dad was he?
1: Overly loving. My father was a very strong working man. He owned a grocery store, neighborhood grocery with his brothers. Always gave me a lot of love, a lot of physical love. Armenian men kiss each other on both cheeks, so he was very affectionate, very physically affectionate. My, I'm writing a book right now. Actually, I want to talk to you gentlemen about it, called "Fathers' Gifts to Sons," and it's talking about where our fathers failed us. But as the same thing, what if some next generation fathers learn from where our fathers failed us? My dad's worked. Hours, hours, late late nights. My father never in my entire childhood took me to a father-son event. I think there was one time when I was in Cub Scouts, he took me to with the Cub Scouts to the Harlem Gold Trotters. But when I was getting all my pins and stuff from Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, he always made it so that I had another person's father take me and some other kid's father would pin the stuff on me now my father thought he was doing right but what I wanted my father there I didn't care about the award but I wanted him to put the word on me not some other kid's father but yet he thought he was doing the right thing as a result of that when I was in private practice I never never missed one of Gregory's significant events every soccer game, every hockey game, I would cancel patience to be sure I was at those events. Because when it's all said and done, buying him stuff isn't what he wants in the long run because those don't create memories. They get worn out and thrown away. Memories are what keeps you the lifetime. But I want to say something about fathers. Mm-hmm. You know, fathers get beat up a lot in our world. And I, I want you, to, the gentleman listening to this, is that I don't care if you don't know who your father was. I don't care if your father's been an absentee father. I don't care if your father was in prison. I don't care if your father was divorced. I don't care if your father was abusive. I don't care if your father was overloving. I frankly don't care what you think of your father. But no matter what, he may have failed in many ways. But there's one thing that he didn't fail at, and that's contributing to give you life. And if he's done nothing else right in his life, he gave you life. Now, fathers don't wake up in the morning and say, how am I going to mistreat, neglect, or harm my child? A father can only give what he received. And for generations, fathers have failed each other because we didn't know how to father. We saw fathering as being highly critical, judgmental, thinking that we would help them, our sons and our daughters do better by being critical, by pointing out what they didn't do right. You heard that podcast about when the little boy comes home from kindergarten and he made this project and mama sees it first, traditionally mama see it first. And she goes, bonkers on how beautiful it is and how the colors and vibrant da, 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 da. and they put it in a place of honor. So the little boy or little girl thinks, Ooh, I'm talented. And they can't wait the daddy to come home. And daddy comes home and they grab that thing. Go, oh, daddy, daddy. And he says, Now, Ricky, next time you do it, son, if you do it like this, it won't have that crease in it. And did you you could use a different color? And the boy, I look at him thinking, I ain't telling this man nothing anymore because he's too critical. I want mama. But the father's thinking he's making it better by guiding. But what he is doing is being crit- critical and judgmental because he thinks he's doing right. He thinks he's enhancing their skill of learning when he's really being negatively critical. And those are it's just like I gave you the example, Royce, <laughs> about the soccer game. <laughs> You know, I never played soccer. My son played soccer. And there's three of us fathers standing on the sidelines. And we're yelling at the boys, "Do this, do this, do this, do this!" And neither one, of, none of us played soccer. So the sons come up with the, with the ball and say, "Why don't you all show us how it's done?" You know, I mean, so we learned we don't criticize anything because every father's a, a champion at the sport their child's doing, even if they never played the sport. So the kids, I mean, we we gotta be more understanding and supportive, but at the same time helping teach. It's a combination of both. It's not just being, and being loving and showing our vulnerability and showing where we erred and hopefully the next generation of fathers will be better than we are. And they'll be better than the ones before that. I mean, it it just, you want it to enhance. But we blame our fathers for too much. And the worst thing is, We have a choice to go down a different path. We can find other fathers to adopt us. We can look at uncles and aunts. I mean, not aunts, but well, aunts could teach you something too because some boys don't even have an uncle in your life. But an aunt can give strength and teach them things. But we, we need to start looking at how we as men can father all young men. Because I'm a firm believer, only a man can make a boy a man. A woman cannot make a boy a man. But yet, a lot of men say their best friends are women. They're not in healthy relationships as men because they can't tell you about development as a male.:
2: So can you go on to that a little bit more? So what is um, like what is that uh, maturation process? What is the
1: development of, of a male? Well, it, it's just I'll, I'll give you an example. When I do my seminar, Masculinity Revealing the Man Behind, I talk about, there's four areas, but the one I'm going to talk to you about is, in one sense, is sexuality. You know, I talk about when my sister, who's two years younger than I, when mama took us to the department store, my little sister had a little undershirt with little rosebuds on it, and she was going to get her first bra. And she went into this department store, and there's this shell of all these drawers it's not like this anymore where they went in they fitted these little girls with bras training bras and she came out and she was just "Ooh, i am something in this bra i'm a young lady now and then she had her menstrual cycle and she had to confide in another woman either my mama an aunt a cousin some adult woman or some girlfriend that's older that had experienced that teacher that is the rite of passage from girl to young woman. When I ask my audience, what is there for a boy that is the sign that he's made the crossover from boyhood to manhood? Now, this mixed audience. Who do you think raises their hand first, women or men? Uh, probably women. There's no problem. I've, <laughs> I've never had a man raise his hand. And ask the woman, what is it that is the sign and a woman raises raise her hand and I'll call her and I'll say, what is it? She says, a wet dream. Mm. Now, how does mama know? Well, cause she typically does the laundry. Now let's talk as men. It's hard when it dries up on underwear. <laughs> <Yeah>. All right. <laughs> so, but that's the, that's the transition. Now, my point is why don't fathers tell their sons when they're like 10, 9, 10, listen, you're becoming a young man, you're gonna go through a development, your body's gonna change, here's some things that could happen, it's natural if it happens, not all boys this happens, but it's typical, common, blah, 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 da dah, dah, so that they're not frightened. Now, I wanna tell you something, and I said this to Royce before, I've worked with, I had a patient in my practice of a young man that came, thought his parents thought he was depressed and wouldn't talk to them, what it was, and I'm not exaggerating. I don't exaggerate stories. He thought he was dying because he was having wet dreams and didn't tell his parents because he thought something. all this stuff coming out of him, he was dying. Right. How sad is that for a 12-year-old boy to not be able to talk to somebody thinking he's dying? So where's the transition? That's one of the transitions is that we don't know what the rite of passage is because we don't talk about it. But he can now find... I told my son, when this happens, I want you to tell me because we I want to celebrate it. Because now you, you, you are capable of fathering a child now, but that comes with responsibility. And let's talk about sexuality. Mm,
2: yeah. you
1: know, oh, you, just Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh
2: no, I was just gonna say, when you first asked that question, I thought you were gonna say like, um, having sex for the first time isn't like a rite of passage.
1: No. I mean that's that's a rite of passage too, but the significant one is the transition from boyhood to manhood to young man. Mm-hmm. Sex is another thing. That that's 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 another stage that comes along as well. But you know, th- there was a study done that average, I wish I would have written this down somewhere, but the average guy doesn't even know how to put on a condom correctly, believe it or not. I mean, it's, it's so, but those are things we should be teaching our boys because the typical response is, shoot, I don't use none of those. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of guys crack up about saying, I don't use them. You know, come on. You know, but one of the things I do think is teaching our sons is, is that we should be talking about sexuality and the use of condoms because I will tell you, I'm very transparent and I'm very blunt, if you can tell, but I want young men To start off, if they're going to be sexual, starting off always using a condom. And then only when you want to be a father do you stop using one. Because I will tell you, and you young men should know because you're both fathers, correct? Yes. Uh, That once you take it off, you never want to put it on again. (laughs) (laughs) All right? So, so... So if you don't know what you're missing until you are responsible in a position where you want to have a child, there's no need to, because, and I'm serious. If you, if you don't know what you're missing, you don't miss it. But once you change the process, now you're playing Russian roulette. Because you're, you know, I don't care. People say, oh, there's accidents that, you know, that happens, but but that's part of parenting. That's what fathers should be talking to their sons about. Now, we're laughing, but it's 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 really something that is responsible. I was a consultant to a teen father's program of boys under 16 that were fathers to 14-year-old girls having babies, thinking he's a manly man and he can't even finish high school because he played Russian roulette early.
0: You're playing with a loaded gun. It's not, That's right. It's not a good idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I have a ten-year-old and I'm uh, coming, coming uh, you know, uh, uh, upon that time to have that conversation. I actually been talking to him uh, about sex. Um, but yeah, getting into the details, like you know, talking about you know what dreams and you know, uh, you know what you're what you're capable of as a as a boy. You can make a baby as a boy. That's right. So I think having those conversations early is, is really important. Did, uh, how did your dad uh, approach that conversation with you? Did he have a uh, similar approach? or Oh,
1: heck no. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the typical position where most fathers attempt to talk to their sons, and I've studied this, and I've asked men all over the place, the most common place is while they're driving in a car. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: So the father don't have to look at the boy. The boy's sitting to the right of the dad. The dad's driving. It's, well, your mama told me it's about time I have this sex talk with you, but I'm sure you know everything already. Now, what's the boy going to say? No, daddy, I don't know anything. He's thinking my dad thinks I should know, so I'm going to tell him I know because he thinks I know. And if if he thinks I know and I don't know, then I'm going to disappoint him that I don't know. So I'm going to say, yeah. And then the dad wipes his brow and says, oh, Lord, thank you, because I don't have to tell this boy I don't know nothing. Because I don't know how it's gone you know I mean it's it's sad because no one taught him how to bring it up so how do you talk about something that you don't feel comfortable talking about because no one taught you how to talk about it that goes back to a father can only give his son what he was given that's why I love what you guys are doing with this fatherhood the love of, is teaching fathers early on when they're first getting married what what to expect and what kind of father do you want to be? You know, do an in, when I work, with, do an inventory. Where did your father please you? Where did he disappoint you? And what are those disappointments would you like to do differently if you have a son or a daughter? Either one, parenting is parenting. Fathers, I don't care if it's a boy or a girl. It's a little different, obviously, for a boy and a girl, but the qualities are the same.
2: Would, would you agree that women, um, cause it's a lot of like single mothers and especially in the black community. It, um, would you agree that women are, they may not be able to teach a boy how to become a man but they're able to teach the boy how to be you know, responsible. Um, pretty much a, a good person.
1: I think a woman, mm-hmm. the mother's role to her son is to teach him to be respectful of women. Okay. And how to respect women. Now, given what you said about single mothers, regardless of what race you are, because if you're a single mother, for whatever reason, I think that's where you young men or men in this country, and there's some men in East St. Louis doing this now, and I think there's some men that I've met somewhere else that are, what they're trying to do is having, like, boys camp. Mm. Young right. boys and teaching them to be responsible. I did a, a program for a Lovejoy School, that's a, a community right outside of East St. Louis, dominantly African American school. All right, I, I don't think it was a white person there. There were some white teachers, but all the students were African American or black, whatever way you want to go. Right. I one I got was asked to do this consulting with public health, and I developed a program from boyhood to manhood. And it was for fourth, third, fourth, and fifth grade boys, after school. Now here you are. I'm this white guy, or I'm a, I'm a minority actually. I'm Armenian, so I don't see, consider myself a white guy. But I'm this guy that's not African American, and I did this program. And I will tell you, of all everything I've ever done in my career, it was probably the most gratifying thing I've ever done, because those little boys were so hungry and joyful and inquisitive and loving that their perception of being a father and being a man was so innocent and so able to mold. My thought is is we could reach as men, if we could reach those boys before they hit sixth grade, because it's sixth grade is when they're looking for approval. And that's when they get seduced to the dark side. That's when the gangs come into play. That's when the drug dealers go after them. It's when they need to be needed or need to belong because they're insecure and they need to belong to something. If we could get into schools or men of all types of races can do programs in their communities on for boys about being a young man and being responsible. We can make a difference. We can make a difference because it doesn't have to be your daddy that teaches you the way. It could be an uncle. It could be the neighbor. It could be the principal of the school. It could be a teacher. It could be the pastor, the minister, whoever. We should be doing groups of discussion groups about boyhood, responsibility, being a man of God. What is your purpose? You know, Making good choices. Talk, telling our story. You know, before we have to take them to scared straight. You know, we we need to get them before they have to go down that road. Um, What do you think is, um, Richard,
0: the, the biggest lesson that you've learned since becoming a dad?
1: Being as transparent about my journey, both what's worked and what's not, not to be fearful of sharing with him where I have failed and how I've learned from that and rallied, how I've changed paths in my career. And that there's nothing that says you have to stay on one path your whole life, but to follow your dream and just really look at what gives you joy. And that money is not as significant as joy. And You know, going to work, you've heard this, people say this all the time. If you go to work and you could, would do it for free, then you're in the right place because you don't mind going there. So what my biggest gift would be is, is to be, be very affectionate, be very loving, to show all gamuts of my emotions, disappointment, anger, love, affection, forgiveness, and to admit when I've failed and when I've made a
2: mistake. yeah um so i had a chance to listen to um the podcast a little bit earlier too and you know men are a lot of times we're we're creatures of habit and in the discussion that you had you were saying that a lot of times when men like the way that they want to show affection is they go back to like things that worked so like if they want to have sex with their wife they go back to like um, I think in the podcast you you said like you a rug or toe well I don't know if, if this was you no <laughs> but no. Yeah.
1: no what what you, I was saying like, yeah what I was saying is that because we're so ignorant about sexuality mm-hmm. it's that it's not uncommon through my experience of a therapist to find that when men have what is perceived in their mind is a very successful sexual engagement with the female their tendency is to duplicate that all the time because they know it was successful and they're afraid to deviate away from that so what happens is their partner knows the script and they could they could determine before it even happens that it's going to happen because it may be you rubbing her breast two times And she goes, Oh God, here we go. we got to do the whole thing. Or, you know, you rub her big toe against her like, Oh honey, testing the water. Is this going to (laughs) work? So that we tend to be frank. But the issue with that is that as I think I said in the podcast, I remember the the psychiatrist that I was in practice with who trained me as a sex therapist basically said, Richard, people need to go into sex like it's a pie so that they're, they always go in and out at different times in different ways, because if God forbid, I don't know if you guys are spiritual young men, but if God does something or your house changes something that you can't do that same structure again, then what happens, is people become asexual. They, they, they don't touch, they don't have sex because they can't do it the way they used to. But if you have all kinds of ways, you could still be intimate. You could still be sexual, but maybe not in the same pattern, but at least there's other patterns. it's like going home if you only drive home one way all the time and then that street is barricaded but you've never went a different way to go home you can't go home it's the same thing does that make sense
2: yeah it does that's interesting so what are like some things that we can do or like some techniques to be more spontaneous with that in that area well
1: To me, that's an interesting
2: question.
1: (laughs) No No one ever asked me that question. That's a tough one. All right. So, you know, one of the things I think that's probably the most significant is that women want to be intimate and have some intimate sexual play, but they don't always have to go to the end. Men, once they start, we want to go all the way to the end. So women learn that I can't touch him unless I want to do everything. So what happens is we become less touched until we they touch us. But sometimes it's just allowing your woman to massage you, fondle your your penis, without, and get you hard or masturbate you but, or just get you hard and then stop. Now, you may say, well, what's the point of doing that if you're not going to go all the way? The point is enjoy some of it. It's just like, I don't know how graphic you want to get on this show, but I mean, it's, it's just like oral sex. You know, sometimes women will do it, but not do it as long as you might want it. So a lot of guys will say, well, then if you ain't going to do it long, why are you doing it? Now, my point is, wouldn't you rather have some sucking than no sucking? I mean, what? how foolish is that? I mean, how foolish is that?
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's that's stupid. I think you're a stupid man if you're saying, I'd rather have none. And so, I mean, so it's all about really not taking everything to the same pattern or, you know, do it in different positions or different places, you know, be more playful, not so serious. Change the pattern up a little bit. Tell her, hey, listen, let's, let's try something different. Let's try a different way we're, we're attempting to do this. Make her part of it. It's not always your chore. It's not your chore to do it all. That's an evasive question. I know I'm going around it. it. <laughs> oh, you're good. You good. Yeah, that's great
0: advice. Great advice. Yeah, I think uh slowing down too. That's that's probably a powerful technique too. Absolutely. Like like really just like slowing down, like how you approach it. Like uh, like you said, and, a lot of a lot of guys just want to get to that last the ending. Right.
1: Like, and like I tell people, i been telling you, brothers, I will tell you as an older brother here, here, it ain't gonna break off if you don't finish it. <laughs> it'll go out and then you can roll over it ain't gonna break you understand what i'm saying so it's not that you have to end it with the explosion just enjoy the physical contact but there's a there's issues about it because remember i told you in my podcast men burp each other we're not really touched that much think of your own sons if you have to, mamas hold their daughter's hand going to the supermarket they can be 10 years old. And if they're in the mall, they're holding the daughter's hand. The little boys run all over the place. We throw our sons in bed. Little princes get tucked in by daddy, kid, sweetheart. The little boy we throw in bed. You know, when they're three years old, we start shaking their hand. We don't hug them anymore. Uncles are shaking their hand. You young boy. man. He's a boy. He's not a young man. But we're touched So what happens is we're skin hungry. That's why men get so reactive to any kind of touch. So when we hug each other, men, we burp each other, and God forbid our crotches touch. God forbid, ooh, Lord, but if I get hard, ooh, what's that mean? What that means is your body's reacting to warmth. It ain't mean you're getting off on this situation. Your body's reacting. You didn't know this was going to go this way. I didn't expect this to go down this line, guys. Uh
0: So I guess we could segue to this. Uh, What do you attribute your 42 years of marriage
1: to? Being, not feeling we had to be together all the time. My wife, we made a pack early. She's, when she would do poetry readings at the university, I never had to go to them. And she didn't have to come to my professional speakers association meetings and that we enjoyed being having our separate interests, and then bringing coming home and sharing how exciting it was, and enjoying listening to her share her excitement, and me do the same. And yet, we do do things together. I believe in a 20/20/60 20, 20, split. What I mean by that is, is that 20% of our family time she does stuff on her own. 20%, and she would do it with Gregory, our son when he was still young. 20%, I would be on my own, you know, or she would be on her own, I would be with Gregory. And then 60% of the time was family, time when we all did things together. And that it was a a respect of each other having individual needs, interest, that we didn't have to be with each other 24 seven. That was my thing is that we don't have to be that united and everything that we've got tired of each other. I liked hearing her excitement when she came back from something I wasn't at, but I enjoyed looking at her excitement telling me, as opposed to her being angry with me because I'd be pouting the whole time I'm at the event, or her being sitting in a corner when all these speakers are speaking and she's an introvert sitting in a corner and feeling terrible that she had to waste her time being there. That's not couple time
0: yeah uh chris rock had a good joke about that about uh like part, part of the reason why the divorce rate is so high is because women are um you know attached to their men like when they leave the house they can text them they can call them like they're always you know present with their guy like they don't give their guy space to right to be a man you know like uh i, I could really i can see that being a, a, a point because um uh, Back back in the day, like back when your dad, you know, was married, like uh, he used to be able to go to the store and right uh, be gone <laughs> until you got back. right. Like right. now, it's like, uh, well, you have the store? Well, get this, get that, right? Got, don't forget to get this. You know, you're just getting them constant messages from from your woman, and it can get like a you know, a little tired tiresome.
1: Well, and let's be honest, there's some men that do that with their women. Yeah, both it's ways. Two sided. Yeah. It goes two sided. Yeah. For
0: sure. It's my uh, next question to you, uh, Richard. And uh, this has been uh, a really great interview. I really appreciate this. This is, uh, this is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's actually a question I already asked you. Is um, what does fatherhood mean to you? And you gave me a real good answer. I'm gonna read it to you. Uh, you said it is a wonderful journey, helping the next generation of men find the purpose and gifts, leading them to make significant
1: Contributions to mankind. So, uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? I, to, I, for me, it's about helping young men, particularly my son in this case, is to not be afraid to be pigeonholed into what we should be teaching young men. They don't have to prove that they're male, they have to prove their personhood. You don't have to prove to me that you're a black male. You are a a man who happens to be black. I want to know your personhood. I want you to, I want fathers to teach their sons to be the person that they are internally and not be ashamed of what that is, regardless of what their interests are. You know, a lot of fathers, you know, they want their sons to be athletes or they want them to be manly men, but I don't think Christian Dior minds his son being Christian Dior. Or, you know, a Tommy Hilfiger. I mean, I mean, if you want to be a fashion designer, there's no shame in that. It doesn't mean that you that's not masculine. You know, I think that it's about what are your gifts and, em- and embracing that in your sons to expose them to everything. You know, I told you I danced. I was one of seven boys that was the national tap dancing champions in 1968. Seven, we danced at Cloud Nine by the Temptation. There were seven of us. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> there, had ne- there had never been an all-male, master's class level team in America at that time. This is 1968. Boys didn't dance. Particularly heterosexual boys didn't dance. But what happened was I got kicked out of my fraternity. We had high school fraternities. I got kicked out. They called me Mr. Tutu and Faggot my whole senior year in high school because I was a dancer, but I was damn good. But then when disco came, who did all the girls wanna dance with?
0: <laughs> Mr. Tutu.
1: <laughs> right, and then all these guys, that were all these guys that were my fraternity, we had fraternities in high school. All my fraternity brothers then all came around, say, teach me that Richard, teach me that. <laughs> yeah, right, now it's okay. But I want us to exp- allow our boys, I when I was at University Niagara University, the basketball team, we taught them ballet to teach them how to leap. I mean, how to plie to jump higher Mm. control. I mean, dance is a big thing for dancers, for athletes. There's a lot of athletes that take movement. They called it movement rather than ballet, (laughs) but it was ballet. But I think it's what we could do is helping our young men really cultivate and fertilize the gifts that the Lord gave them. And the only way we would help them is exposing them to everything that there is in the world, all the interests, all the sports, all the arts, theater, everything. They and see what sticks, because that may be what their destiny is. And we as fathers should not segregate or separate what we should expose them to. So the best gift we could give to our sons is to do let them have a buffet of opportunities. Mm. Let's see what works. But we got to get over our reluctance to expose them to it all, because some of those things are uncomfortable for us.
0: I like that, expose them to a buffet of opportunities. That's awesome.
2: Do you feel like there's an attack on
1: masculinity? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It, the, absolutely. I mean, my wife, I told you, was an English professor and she taught film and literature. Uh-huh. And we watch a lot of foreign films. And I'll give you an example. I don't know what you young men look like, so I'm not judging. I want to say that right up front. But when you look at American male actors, Tom Cruise, all the American ones, and you see them shirtless, none of them have hair. Other, ch- none of them you look at the European Australian actors who are some of the biggest James Bond, you see those guys, they all have chest hair. Well, look at movies, watch movies. From now talk about, we got, now they got things on how to shave everything in your body. I mean, so do we have a shame about Harry, man? I mean, is there, what does it mean? Now I'm not saying that we can't do self-care, you know, your face and moisturizer. I mean, I don't have a problem with it. But when we have to start changing the appearance of maleness, it gets confusing. And then the other thing too is, what's an appropriate behavior for a man? You know, some of us were raised by polite mamas that taught us you open the door for a woman, you pull out the chair for a woman. Nowadays, a young man may get yelled at or pick up the tab. You may get, what do you mean you? I could pay my own way. I mean, you don't know what to do. It's like you gotta date somebody, you gotta say, are you a traditional woman or are you a liberated woman? I need to know before we go out on our first date because I don't know if I should open the door for you or are you gonna split the bill with me? Are you expecting me to pay or not expecting me to pay? Do I pick you up or do you pick me up? Or do we just meet them? I mean, it's so confusing. It really is confusing today about appropriateness of maleness. I, I think that we have feminized men a little bit too much, quite frankly. But that's my opinion. I know there's others that yeah. think that at all, and that's fine. That's an interesting I,
0: point. Even, um, even the black actors, they don't have—they don't show them like with hair on their chest. I'm thinking about like, uh, like Black Panther. Like, uh, both the, the main characters in that movie were shirtless during that movie. And they both didn't have any hair
1: on their chest now that one that, but that one's a little different because that's a character that's a cartoon not a cartoon it's a marvel so that one is not as bad because it's not a real person there's they're like you know what i mean, yes, I mean yeah yeah i mean it like um um i can't even think of a black actor right now you would think i would know um uh, danzel washington or um i i you know yeah. I don't. Know if those, you know, i mean
0: eddie murphy and uh coming to america like he didn't have any hair on his chest either, like uh, yeah.
1: But some of them don't have it now. If you don't have it, that's another yeah, thing. yeah, right, right. But no, yeah, now, you, now do you have hair on your chest? Oh yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. The, the beard matches
0: everywhere. All so. right. All
1: right. Uh, I mean, I just think it's just it's very confusing because we do criticize a lot too, men, yeah. and and I think it's going to change. I don't think that we. I just think that it's it's different. You know, I, I, I wonder what the future is going to bring if it's going to change anymore, but uh, I just think that there's room for everybody to do what they want. But uh, I just think it's important that uh, it's not about proving your masculinity either. I think it's just, I'm, I'd like to say, prove your personhood Mm -hmm. is to really not prove. I remember Mr. Ellis was, one of my high school English teachers in seventh grade, and he was an African-American man. And and I remember him jumping down one of the black students back because the student tried to pull this, you're one of me kind of things to him because he wasn't prepared. And he said something to the teacher, and I don't remember the exact words, but the teacher said to him, I ain't your brother, number one, and number two, Do you want to be known as the black athlete or do you want to be known as the athlete's black? And, and it's the same thing with all of us. What do you want to be known as, as the best athlete who happens to be heterosexual, black, Chinese, whatever, or do you want to be known as the, your ethnic group person? I mean, that shouldn't matter. It should be about your personhood. That's what you, that's what you want to be. I'm, I'm going for a, the Urban League, a meeting with them next week. And they are started a program for 16 to 65 year old African-American men, trying to help them get back into their communities and getting jobs and and they're doing personal development, interviewing, um, fitting them up for suits and such. And uh, I was meeting a man, he heard about my men mentoring men networks. So he wanted to meet with me, very nice young man. And um, his name was Jeffrey is Jeffrey. And I said, Jeffrey, can I ask you a question? When they're doing these interviews, who's doing the interviews? And he said, well, the, the men in the group are interviewing the clients. And I said, oh, OK, can I ask you a question, Jeffrey? <laughs> and he's looking at me, and he says, what you? yeah, Richard, certainly. I said, um, so let me get this straight. These Black African-American men in the program are going to be interviewed by African-American men in the program, the leadership team? He said, yes. I said, let me ask you something, Jeffrey. When these men go out to get interviews, what's the chances of them being interviewed by an African-American man? He just looked at me. I said, 90% of the people interviewing them are either going to be women, white, Asian, Iranian, or something else, and maybe some african American." So you need to have them comfortable as a person who has to be black being interviewed by a white person because they're not going to... He says, you know, Richard, I never thought there's a much more comfort being interviewed by your own people. I said, absolutely. They got to be able to stand there and look that man in the eye that's white and say, I'm a man amongst men and I am somebody and I'm the best fit for this job and look at that man straight in the eye and sell the... Because that person may see the color, you got to be comfortable in your person, but they got to practice against people where they're going to be frightened to be interviewed by. So that's why they want me to set it all up to have other people interview these guys because I want them to be successful. But can you imagine practicing, but you're being interviewed by (laughs) the same people that that's not interviewing you? Does Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's about us being more comfortable in our, that's what I was talking about. I want men to be comfortable in their nakedness to say, I am a man amongst men, and it's my obligation for the world to meet me because I have something to offer, but I want to meet you because you have something to offer me, and our lives will be better and more enriched because we know each other.
2: Uh, that's great. Um, I know we're getting close to time. Uh, so I have one last question. Okay. Yeah, one, one last question. That's to, um, I guess, uh, bring some humor into it. Uh, what do you feel about the Kardashians?
1: Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> interesting enough, I have a relative who knows who's indirectly related to the Kardashians. what I have mixed feelings, quite frankly. Hmm. Now, you got to give me some slack here. Okay?
2: No, we got you. (laughs)
1: Uh, If I'm looking at purely as an Armenian, I'm embarrassed. Because I think in many ways, she's put a negative light on the Armenian people because of her Initial behavior, how she got popular.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: At the same time, I applaud her because she did go with Kanye West to Armenia, and she brought recognition to Armenia that a lot of people never knew about Armenians until so she went there. So for that, I applaud her. So I want to cut her some slack that way. What I find most interesting, I, I I'm going to ask you a question, both of you. Then is Don't you find, I found it odd that all three girls were raised by a white mama and an Armenian father whose father died and all of them are dating Black men. How is that possible? I mean, what is, I mean, how is that possible? I mean, one, I can understand, but they're all, well, excuse me the ones not. Mama was dating a black guy. Kim married a black guy. Another black, the other sister was a black guy. I mean, what the the, the, the non, the gendered sister, I mean, what are the odds? Now, as a black man, don't you think that's odd?
2: Yeah, it is. I it's mean quite, quite peculiar. <laughs> yeah. I,
1: mean, I mean, really, I mean, we're talking honest. I mean, so so I got I mean, I, I admire them as business people. Kim's no fool. She's a smart girl. She's finished law school. I think she made the best of what the situation is. I wish they would just retire from the public eye and just do wonderful lives and just get out of the highlights. I don't, I mean, why do they still need all that attention is what I don't get. But now I'll tell you a funny story about it. My daughter-in-law, His last name is Karakashian. So when my son got married to Lori Karakashian, her father's name was Robert, just like Robert Kardashian. So when Gregory's invitations went out to all his college fraternity brothers, they thought he was marrying a Kardashian. So they were called, are you marrying a Kardashian? And there's three sisters. Their younger sister's name is Kim. She's gonna get married. Her father's name, the father's name is Robert. So it's Robert Karakashian, (laughs) Kim. You know, I mean, it's just, it's. (laughs) he used to make reservations and people would write down, they would say Karakashian and they would write Kardashian. So when the girls went there, they're thinking the Kardashians are coming. It was a Karakashian (laughs) (laughs) with three sisters. (laughs) So, I mean, I have mixed, like I said, as an Armenian, I was embarrassed in the beginning because she brought negative light to Armenian name. But then I have to applaud her because she's turned around and done some incredible good things for the Armenian, bringing recognition to the Armenian Holocaust. She baptized her children in Armenia. I I think for that, I applaud her, but I also think she and her sisters are brilliant business people, so I applaud them. But I still wonder about why they're all dating black. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I I hope you don't mind me being that candid but it, I, you asked me so I'm telling you.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, no no worries. I just wanted to see what you what you thought about
1: them. <laughs> but you think it's weird too though, right? Oh yeah, it is. And
2: I I think in a lot of ways it's part of the the business um I guess their business plan.
1: Maybe it's working. God bless it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, before I get to my last question, Richard, uh, uh, we, we, we normally uh, dub our uh, episodes that are awesome as Hall of Fame episodes, mm-hmm. so uh, Dr. Young, uh, do, you, do you qualify this one, man? What do you think, man? Hall of Fame?
2: Yeah, I would say so.
0: Hall of Fame, all right. So <laughs> if, you had a, if you had a jersey number, what number would you be? 12. 12, that's a good number. <laughs> I like that. So, uh, yeah, so again, Richard, man, thanks for, for jumping on with us. And uh, the last question I have for you is, um, if you had to give advice to any dad or even a granddad that's listening, uh, what advice would that be?
1: Is be attentive, participate in their lives, show interest, and share your story as as appropriate as it is at the right age know your journey, Let talk about your father. Let them know where your father failed and where your father was great and that you're really trying to be better. Good stuff. Yeah, all
0: right. Well, Dr. Young, did you have uh, anything else? Any other questions?
2: No, no other questions. Um, I just want to <laughs> say thank you. Yeah,
1: thank you, thank you for joining us. Hey, I, I, actually, this is the most open Podcast guest, guest appearance I've ever done. I mean, this is. I mean, when when Roy says, "Well, we're just gonna go with it," I'm thinking most people give me a structure. He says, "We're just gonna wing it." I thought, "Okay, well, we winged it." So yeah, oh yeah. I, I just want to end by telling you both, I can't tell you as an elder male how respectful I am of what you boys are doing, and I hope you don't mind, boys, or young men, excuse me. Oh yeah. But I, I, I'm really respectful of what you're doing and and delighted and know that I'm here if I could help in any way, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I, I would be very open to helping you guys on your journey. And I'm honored that you asked me to be on this. Take care. All right, well for myself before this be and for my um host, Dr. Ryan Yang and
0: also for our special guest, Richard. Half doing. Got it. Fantastic. Yes. Build yeah. it. Thanks for listening again to welcome to Fatherhood Interviews and uh stay tuned for further announcements.